This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. These are manuscripts that have been around for generations, and they've just been collecting dust. When Evlana Eisenberg received them in the mail, she was so excited to be able to record them with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra and her mother, violinist Zena Schiff. She tells us about some of her discoveries, and we also hear from William Grant Still's granddaughter, Celeste Headley, about the composer, his hopes, his dreams, and his reality. It's what we learn about this week on new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mucker. I want to start off, Avlana, by having you introduce yourself to listeners who may not know who you are. Say your full name and then just tell us a little bit about your conducting career or anything else you want us to know about you. Sure. Hi. So my name is Avlana Eisenberg, and I currently am music director of the Boston Chamber Symphony. And I grew up playing violin from age three, and my mother, Zena Schiff, was my first teacher. And I continued playing violin through college, which is also where I took up conducting and studied at various festivals and did graduate programs at the Peabody Institute and at the University of Michigan. And uh, that sort of set the foundation uh, for the conducting work that I do now. On this new recording, which highlights 13 world premiere recordings by William Grant Still, you and your mother are working together, and this is not the first time that that's happened. Tell me a little bit about that relationship when you're not just mother-daughter, but you're at the podium providing direction, or maybe it's more collaboration. It's definitely collaborative, and, and I dare say that we're at our best when we're collaborating musically. It has definitely brought us even closer together. She has been, for as long as I can remember, my primary musical inspiration, and so much of my notion of what it is to be a musician, I think, comes, whether I'm aware of it or not, from growing up with her, uh, getting to collaborate with her both in live performance and as part of recordings. And we've done both at this point. Uh, those experiences are certainly among some of my musical highlights. And, uh, and you know, that said, she's also the person who probably can press my buttons more than anyone else. So it really is a special thing when we can come together in a musical context. And I just feel a tremendous closeness. Uh, and I learn something every time. And it's, it's really a magical collaboration. Your mother, Zena Schiff, is also a protege of Yasha Heifetz, which made me wonder if there are any interesting stories you could share or that she has shared with you, perhaps. I guess... I've always thought, based on her stories, that he served as both her primary musical mentor, but also a surrogate father of sorts. So she lost her father when she was 10. And Mr. Heifetz, as she always continued to call him, never Yasha, uh, took her to her first baseball game, taught her how to play ping pong. She has these incredible stories of just more of a, a parental relationship even uh, than purely an instructor-pupil one. So it was a very close relationship and I felt privileged because of that relationship. I never met Mr. Heifetz, but 
One of my first violin teachers after I stopped studying with my mother was Eric Friedman, who was one of Yasha Heifetz's primary uh, early protégés. And having him as my violin teacher felt like there was this link across generations. And they were also, of course, very simpatico. It was hard to find a violin teacher that my mother approved of, and this was someone who she respected immeasurably. So that, that worked rather well. Wonderful. Celeste Headley, you are the granddaughter of William Grant Still. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with this new recording, which is just being released. So I didn't know about the recording until it was done and ready to be listened to, which made it a better experience for me anyway. I mean, because what a surprise. There are pieces on here that I have never actually heard performed before. None of them have been recorded before, but there are pieces I haven't even ever heard played. So for me, my relationship was just excitement um, that it had been made and uh, just an open offer to Aflana of, of what do you need to help publicize it? Whatever you need, you got it. So that's the the sum total of my relationship. As William Grant Still's granddaughter, you know firsthand what family meant to your grandfather. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that and how that might be reflected in the music on this recording. So my grandfather's family was everything to him. I mean, I was his granddaughter, which means I could literally do absolutely no wrong as far as he was concerned. I was all four grandchildren were destined to be president um, and perfect geniuses. Um, he, you know, his family life was his joy. You know, he, when he wasn't composing, even when he was composing, he was at home, but when he wasn't composing music, he was building toys with his own hands for his children, building train sets. He wrote a couple pieces that he de- dedicated to his dog. He was an avid gardener. Like, it was all about hearth and home for him. And that that started in his own home. You know, raise, he was raised by a mother who was just fierce in her protection of him and her also fierce in her determination that he would make something of himself and that he would be a credit to his race. And so for him, that's what family is. It's both big aspirations and also big support. So, I mean, on this recording, it's hard for me to say specifically how that relates in this recording. And I say that because to my ear, every piece that he wrote sounds like him. I'm going to say he wasn't an intellectual composer. And by that, I don't mean that he wasn't incredibly well-taught, well-schooled, and, and and a craftsman. I just mean that he poured his personality and his heart into every piece of music. That is what determined what ended up being on the page as opposed to what sounded smart. Um, and so when I listen to any of these pieces, that sounds like my grandfather. <laughs> Um, It's hard to point to one or another that sounds more like family to me. It all does. Avlana, you're nodding your head in agreement with some of the things Celeste is saying. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Where maybe, given the fact that here's this mother-daughter combination on stage or making this recording, as you and your mother are performing these pieces together, do you sense a family connection in the music as well through the relationship William Grant still had with his family? So there's something so profoundly personal about his music. And I guess to me, because 
music in its essence is expressive and has always been this source of love and connection to family. So that resonates very deeply. And I, I agree so much with what Celeste said in terms of, you know, his works are so varied, but they're also so quintessentially him. And I think when I first started pouring over the different scores I was sent, I was most struck by the variety. And then as I delved deeper, I was most struck by this personal aspect of his voice that transcends all and that does create an intimacy and I think lends itself to both sounding so fresh but also so accessible. And I'll also note that in my very first conversation with Celeste when she told me that Mother and Child was one of her favorites of his pieces of all time, um, that was a real moment of connection because it it has been for me too and, and as you can probably imagine, getting to record this most most intimate piece uh, standing up there with my mother was just remarkable and it continues to be one of the most emotional tracks for me. Celeste, do you want to add anything to that about that piece, Mother and Child, which is actually part of a violin suite, is that right? Um, yeah, it's a suite for violin and piano, and it's it. All three pieces were inspired by a, a piece of visual art, and in this case, it's inspired by a, a sculpture of a, a mother not just embracing but encircling her child. And you know, this piece is not easy to play. If you look at it on the page, it 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 will deceive you <laughs> in thinking, oh, I could play this, um, because. Playing the notes, if you just play the notes, you haven't played the piece. I mean, this requires a violinist, and in in fact, the entire ensemble, to uh, let go of inhibitions to a certain extent. You have to wear your heart on the sleeve, or this piece will not speak. piece is so naked in its emotion if you hold anything back it's noticeable people will know that you're faking it 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 requires a deeper level of emotional investment than many musicians are willing to give to be quite frank so i mean i think the performance on this cd is outstanding this is the first time we've had it recorded with orchestra it's been recorded with piano and and violin before, but I think with the orchestra behind it, you get a a depth of sound to that accompaniment to the violin that reaches you almost on a visceral level. So especially, you know, when when Zena gets to the the cascading notes at at the apex of the piece... And you hear that the orchestra eventually come in behind her. It it's like a, a it resonates in my gut. Like 
like it's it moves you on a level that this is what we come to classical music for, right? I mean, this that moment of of full body chills is what we're all here for, uh, where someone has reached you and moved you on a level that is beyond words. I don't think music gets any better than that. I don't think there is a higher or deeper emotional experience than that moment. Avlana, I wanted to talk about the arrangements on this recording because some of these were pieces for solo piano or smaller ensembles. Where did these orchestral arrangements come from? Are they, do they come from different places or one source? No, they all came from William Grant Still. They had just never been recorded before. And in some cases, I believe, never performed. Oh, wow. So how did you find them? So this dates back to, well, so when Zena was working on a solo violin and piano All-American album back in the 90s was when she became acquainted with William Grant Still's music. She was sent six short pieces, including Summerland and Put Dat Fulmish, which we included as orchestral versions here, uh, by the producer she was working with at the time. He continued sending her violin piano works and then as she learned that these pieces were orchestrated that became the the germ of this album that would be all still all orchestral and all world premieres um, and so it was the same producer who had a connection with the estate who started sending these works many of which were in stills original hand what got you most excited about creating this recording of lana well so this All-American album that I referred to was one of my favorites of my mother's dating way back. Uh, and I, at that point, had no familiarity otherwise with the composer. And it was once I learned that there were all these orchestral pieces. And then once I actually got a box in the mail and started pouring over these original manuscripts and, and realized, I mean, I, to what Celeste was saying, you know, I was familiar, for example, with the violin suite in its piano version, but then suddenly I'm looking at the orchestral version and noting, for example, there's this fabulous part in the third movement, which is a dialogue between the solo violin and the bassoon. And Gammon refers to this streetwise young boy. And it's also based on a piece of art. Um, you see this, this boy with a hat and a glimmer in his eye. And here, and, and still actually marks in the score with, with humor. And to hear it played in dialogue with the bassoon, it's, it's just the perfect color. dialogue is so evocative and so these are the kinds of moments that however sensational some of these works are with piano it just elevates it I think to a totally different level to experience what he can do with orchestral color and so that's what really got me excited.
pieces that I keep going back to is Summerland, which comes from a collection of three visions he wrote. And this one is supposed to be depicting the purity of heaven. I think it's such a brilliant depiction. There's something so serene, so transcendent, and uh, it's a testament to, to Zena's playing and to the musicians of the RSNO that they make it sound luxurious and effortless, even though this is not an easy piece to play, but it just, it does. It sounds so heavenly and, and I think still just does a phenomenal job of transporting us to this, this higher place, whatever that means to someone. Mm, yeah. You know, he wrote this for, for my grandmother, for his, his wife. She premiered it originally. And I think you can, even in the orchestra, she was of Russian Jewish descent, a very, very accomplished um, concert pianist. And he wrote for, she had this incredible spread in her hands. For a tiny woman, she was like 4'10". She had this, she could just flatten out her hands completely. Um, and the, the alternating hands in the piano version as they alternate through that that melody he i mean you could tell that he wrote it for i can tell that he wrote it for her and when that gets translated into the orchestra it becomes a kind of magic that what would have been alternating hands in the piano becomes, as, as Aflana was saying about the other piece, it becomes a bit of a, a dialogue, a back and a forth, these, the louder dynamics that come and go, these small movements within the orchestra. I mean, this is the most famous of three movements of the three visions. And I think that in it, you really hear his genius for playing an orchestra as though it were one instrument. He's not writing for a bunch of disparate instruments. He's writing for an orchestra. And that's how he always wrote for orchestra. It's, it's one of the things that made him such a brilliant orchestrator. Um, and I think this, this arrangement of Summerland really demonstrates that. Celeste, you mentioned that your grandfather even wrote music relating to his dog. Yes. And so I'm curious if you knew his dog, Shep, who is paid tribute to in the third track on this recording, Quit That Foolish. Yeah, I did not. Shep passed away before I ever came around. Shep actually died. He choked on a chicken bone eventually, but he was very beloved. My grandfather was, I mean, when you say dog person, William Grant still was a dog person and he loved all of his dogs. But Quit That Foolish is something that he would say to, frankly, not just the dogs, but his grandchildren as well. Um, that's something that came out of his mouth on, on multiple occasions. But I, I mean, I just feel like, I mean, he's clearly scolding the dog. The dog has done something bad. But it's a little bit like the the movement gammon that Evlana was talking about earlier. There's this love there, right? Like the person has done something mischievous. Mm-hmm. 
But there's also just so much love and affection for the dog or the little boy. Um, I mean, William Grant still, my grandfather had such a sense of humor. And in many of his scores, if you see his his autograph copies, he drew, he wrote little remarks and drew little characters in many of the margins. Like there's, he wrote a piece called The Black Man Dances. And at the very end, he has all these little dancing figures say, and it says, he's done, he finished, no one can believe it. And, you know, if he put a typo, he'd correct the typo and say, I know you're thinking, how could he mess this up again? Like he had all these little jokes and comments in in the margins of his scores. Um, He just had such a great sense of humor. And um, this piece really, really shows that off. And I think one other thing that's characteristic of, of grandfather's music here is he was brief. Like, he didn't elongate anything. He said what he needed to say. And once he felt like he'd said what needed to be said musically, he ended it. There's no four-hour symphonies in his oeuvre, right? Like, he was he was brief. He was to the point. He got in. He got out. There's several other pieces. I wonder, Avlana, rather than me just going through them all, which one's would you like to talk about that you're most excited about? I know you're going to say all of them because these are all your children, but if you could only talk about, let's say, three more, which would they be? Oh, gosh. It is a very hard question. I guess one that comes up immediately for me is Serenade. This is a very sparsely orchestrated piece and was originally conceived of as a cello concerto, which may not be a surprise when you hear the lush, melodic strains of the cello. It's simple, but it is so deeply moving and and so beautifully orchestrated. Um, Threnody is another favorite. This was written to uh, commemorate the 100th anniversary of Sibelius's birth. And in this piece, it, it showcases a depth of Still's writing and a poignancy that I, I, I find so, so moving and so profound every time. And he, he draws on the way he uses the snare drum as this symbol of fate and the muted trumpets at the end of the piece. Where there's this acquiescence and then the final pizzicato at the very, very end that just dissolves into nothingness. It's so incredibly evocative and, again, so contrasting from, you know, just a little bit earlier, we're hearing this piece that's motivated by his love for and maybe slight annoyance with his his dog, right? Um, or Pastorella, which is this tone picture of California. Yeah. 
he does this incredible job of painting this vivid picture of the different aspects of what makes California so gorgeous, so vivacious. He just, he brings this image to life. I want to go back to the piece Serenade. You mentioned it was intended as a cello concerto, but then it became a commission by the Great Falls Montana High School Orchestra. Do you know how that came about? So I don't know all the details. Maybe maybe Celeste can weigh in. Um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, my senses still wrote for so many different kinds of ensembles. And I think that really speaks to his his versatility. And I mean, you see that in this album, just even the array of different orchestrations. He wrote for for school ensembles, he wrote for professional orchestras. Uh, my sense was he had this ability to write for any ensemble. Uh, but I, I don't know the specific details of, of how that evolved. Uh, I don't either, in case you're gonna go to me, I would have to look that up as well. Um, you know, he was a working composer. He may have been one of the only composers in history who made his living entirely from composing. He never took a teaching position. He never took a conducting position as well, um, which is very rare. But that also means that he would begin writing something and then a commission would come up and, you know, he would change it for the commission. I will say, you know, you listen to Serenade, which is just an exquisite piece. Um, it's obviously has a lot of neo-romantic sounds to it, but it, it it harkens back to so much contemporary folk music that it sounds so fresh. You know, you, you normally with a ballad, we, we can call to mind how we expect a ballad to end. Right. That is not how Serenade ends. <laughs> There's this this fortissimo of just joy. Which makes you think if, if this is a serenade, if this is one person serenading their love, maybe there's a, a joyful consummation at the end. Maybe the serenade was successful. Um, it, it, it gives it has a storyline for me in my head. But essentially, we're talking about him using pretty much every color of the palette. I mean, he, yeah, he's hearkening back to neo-romantic aesthetics, but he's modernizing it and he's making it, um, uh, he, he, he's, he's broadening the appeal of it with the sound of folk music, with the sound of contemporary, even popular music, and, and turning it into something that's bigger than the sum of its parts, and then surprises you at the end. Um, I, I love that this was and ended up in the hands of a high school first. I mean, that makes me so very happy because it is simple in some ways, and yet I can absolutely imagine myself as that kind of young musician just really loving it. Fanfare for the 99th Fighter Squadron premiered in 1945 in commemoration of the end of World War II and also honoring the service of the Tuskegee Airmen. 
Just last week, I went to a college alumni function, which I wasn't planning to go to, but I noticed that the featured speaker was a former Tuskegee Airman. And I brought a copy of the CD, and the look on this man, Enoch Woodhouse's face, when he saw Still's picture, who he recognized immediately, and then when I told him about the fanfare, it was one of the most moving experiences of my life. And he was elated, and it was so special, and his stories were incredible. So that was a connection that was very much unexpected and incredibly memorable. Celeste, I want to ask you, how would you like us to remember your grandfather, or what would you like us to know about him that is rarely shared? When we share his music, say, on the radio, what would you like us to be sure to include about him? I would like people to stop referring to him as a Black composer. Unless you're going to start adding a demographic information about every composer you mention— and call Copeland a Jewish composer and Rachmaninoff a Russian composer every time we talk to them, I would like to stop doing that. He, it's not that race was an important part of who he was, but the music speaks for itself. And I, I would like people to put the same care and analysis and respect to the music itself that they do with other composers rather than focusing always on his his race um so yeah and and stop playing the music only in february Mm. one thing i did want to ask you celeste is that your grandfather had hoped that his music might serve a purpose larger than mere music yeah that it might help in some way to bring about better interracial understanding in america and in other countries do you believe that his music has achieved his goals no um you know, n- no, I don't. I, I think that um, racism is so entrenched <laughs> uh, and so subconscious that it would be difficult for any music or any single figure to do that. Do I think he has helped us make progress? Do I think that people are sometimes uh, amazed at the quality of the music? Yes, the fact that they're amazed at the quality of the music is in itself a result of prejudice. The fact that they are surprised that he's he wasn't a tabula rasa. Sometimes we approach black composers like they're all self-taught, and so I I try very strenuously to make sure that um, people understand that he was extensively educated. Um, but you know, he came from a generation. He and his mother, and she was the first of the family, she born just at the end of the Civil War, um, came from a generation that believed that if, if white people knew how smart and accomplished black people could be, if, if, if black people could prove that they were deserving of equal treatment, if they could impress people with their accomplishments and their intellect and their taste and their wit, that that would make racism disappear. And they were wrong about that. It wasn't a lack of knowledge that caused white racism or caused white people to discriminate against them. And my grandfather, I think that was heartbreaking 
to my grandfather when he finally realized that no matter how talented he was, no matter what he achieved and attained, he would never be welcomed in the vaulted halls of of, of classical music. He is now, <laughs> but he wasn't when he died. He was forgotten. He was making his living writing pieces for elementary school textbooks, a job that Leopold Stokowski got for him. And then the, the textbook editors called up Stokowski and said, hey, can you get us in touch with Wayne Grant still? We want him to change some of this music. And Stokowski blew a fuse and said, you don't, you're going to ask William Grant still to change a single note of his music. You know, my grandfather died in a nursing home in Los Angeles, basically forgotten. At the time, he was getting very few performances of his work. After his opera that he wrote with Langston Hughes was panned by the New York critics and closed, doors began closing for him. And that was, you know, in the first half of the 20th century. And and although he still went on to create just gorgeous music, and he never, ever put less than everything he had into the music that he made, he was writing for smaller and smaller ensembles, not orchestras anymore, but bands, not bands anymore, but chamber ensembles, not chamber ensembles anymore, but choirs. So that's a tough question for me because my grandfather's life is a testament to how hard it is to be the first of anything. And he suffered for being the first. And um, I think he died thinking that he had failed. What can we do? What can we do to um, make people more aware of who he is and what he truly did accomplish? I mean, I think Avlana has and and her colleagues have are doing that right now. It, you know, to have an entire CD of his music played so carefully and with such heart and intention and care to seek out those pieces that have not been heard or recorded before and to not associate it with Black History Month. Look, nothing against Black History Month, but the music should speak for itself. And the music does speak for itself. And every person, every American especially, should be proud of what he accomplished, not just Black people. Um, we should listen to his music and feel the same kind of pride people feel if they hear Sousa. Like, this is the sound of our soil. This is the sound of our nation. And we should play it. Evlana, would you like to add anything? Maybe something that you discovered about yourself in putting this recording together? I, you know, I've, I'm, I'm also sort of of mixed minds. On the one hand, I think that this, it is something to celebrate that it seems like maybe the world and this country is, is ready in a way for this music in the way that it wasn't. On the other hand, <laughs> it's crucial to remember this is not new music. This, these manuscripts have been around for generations and largely, as Celeste says, collecting dust. So I'm thrilled that we could do something to put this music out there and that hopefully through digitizing some of these scores and making them more accessible, not only the product of this recording, but hopefully for many, many live performances moving forward, that this goal, this mission, this project continues. Um, but obviously this is just the very, very beginning. And I think through 
my work on this project, it just became abundantly clear. I mean, every single piece that I was sent, I immediately thought was worth putting on the album. I'm well aware that there are many, many more pieces of stills and of other composers who have been neglected over the years. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to make sure that this is not a passing phase and that this is a momentum that gets carried forth. One of the things that I think may also be worth having a conversation about briefly is American orchestras performing and recording this music. This recording is made with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. I know John Jetter made a recording with his own ensemble in Arkansas, but then he had to go abroad to make his second Florence Price recording. What does that say, if anything, about our own American orchestras? Sorry, can I answer this one first? (laughs) I would love for you to answer it. Um, So... The Arkansas Symphony Orchestra, based in Little Rock, which is my grandfather's hometown, also the hometown of Florence Price, played its very first piece by William Grant Still uh, in, I think, 2019. I mean, how do you possibly justify that? And I, please, if you're with the Arkansas Symphony, feel free to call me. (laughs) Email me. It's Celeste at CelesteHeadley.com. Not only that, but when I I, I flew to Little Rock for the premiere and... The no one from the orchestra ever spoke to me when I was there for the premiere of the orchestra. That to me shows this is obviously this isn't about me. This is about my grandfather, and it's a lack of respect for their very probably the most famous composer who's going to come out of Little Rock. I mean, who's what other composers have come out of Little Rock? I'm sure there are some, but that have won multiple Guggenheim fellowships and was the first black person to have a major opera performed? I mean, come on. So American orchestras for so long, and and I believe this is changing, but it's changing at such a glacial pace that it's hard to see. They have for so long looked to Europe. And I mean, this is literally something that uh, we have been lectured on since the days of, of, of Harry T. Burley and Dvorak. And yet we have not fully learned this lesson to embrace our own composers, our own musicians, our own music and lift it up, not for something for it to play on the 4th of July, not something for your American music concert, but put it in your repertoire I mean, I can't say enough about this. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. It just gets me very, very worked up. Avlana, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to add? When Naxos expressed interest in this project and connected us to the folks at the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, an orchestra that Zena had worked with before and had a fantastic experience. And, And for me, and, you know, we did think about does this make sense for for some of these same reasons? Um, Ultimately, my goal was to make sure that the caliber of this recording was as high as it possibly could be. And the RSNO is one of the most well-regarded ensembles 
in Europe. It's the, I believe, the most recorded orchestra in the UK. And once there was interest from them, I was confident that they would do a stellar job. And so it, it became a little bit of a moot point, uh, only because at that point, my highest priority was to do it as, as quickly as we could, to get the music out as soon as possible, and to do it at a caliber that I really could go in knowing that this was an ensemble that's used to playing such a wide range of music. That said, no one had played William Grant still. And it was a bit of a revelation, I think. And I'm still in touch with some of the players. And I think it's been really thrilling for them to see the reception, uh, both in the US and in the UK, uh, as well as elsewhere internationally. So, so it did feel in a way like we were bringing this gift overseas and, uh, and was a really exciting collaboration. Um, but that said, I think that it's very clear that still should be considered part of the American canon and among the greatest of American composers. And I do hope that American orchestras continue to take note that those who already have and those that haven't, um, it's of course long overdue. Thirteen world premiere recordings on a brand new release with Avlana Eisenberg, Zena Schiff, and the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. <laughs> <laughs>